Here comes Cohen. He's headed for the plate. This game is tied. Our 17th athletic director for Mississippi State University, John Cohen. You found us again. It's another episode of the John Cohen Podcast. I'm Neil Price, the play-by-play broadcaster at Mississippi State University, Director of Athletics, John Cohen, alongside as well. Hey, what do you know? We've made it to another one. Exciting, Neil. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I can't contain myself. <laughs> Man, hey, last episode we are talking about Yazoo City, so we got you going on, on your haul. Yeah. So we can uh, – but this will be a little different today. Yeah, and we're talking with two really, really great guys today as we move into baseball. And uh, baseball season is in full swing, whether you're talking about uh, college baseball or if you're talking about the beginnings of Major League Baseball just around the corner. So this will get you in the mood as we visit with legendary Mississippi State head coach Ron Polk and one of the great pitchers in Mississippi State history and a guy who was uh, one of the best big league pitchers Jeff Brantley, uh, who's gone on to a successful broadcasting career with the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, this had to be fun for you, a baseball guy, right? So much fun, Neil. I mean, when you talk to Ron Polk, who's devoted his entire life to the game, even to this day, still devoting his time and attention to the game, and you, you really get to, to bear down on his attention to de- detail and what he has done for so many folks who – who went on to do incredible things in the sport and outside of the sport, 27 big leaguers, all the All-Americans. Just a thrill for me to be able to sit down with Coach and and hash over some old times. And when you talk about Ron Polk, he is the godfather of SEC baseball, the guy who kind of brought it into the the light that it enjoys now, not just in one or two markets, but league-wide. Well, Ron Polk was the first man in the history of the SEC in terms of baseball to stand up and say, hey, guys, this is important. We're going to make this into, you know, a a place, a league that's going to create excitement, going to create big leaguers, create big crowds, and we're going to take this thing to the next level. And he was the first one to do that. Also the first one, Neil, to have a 1,000 wins in any sport. So you're talking about a man who's had a long career, who, who has invested every fiber of his being to his university and to his players and and to his family. Ron Polk is also a guy who will tell you exactly what's on his mind. And you'll get some candid conversation with him in this interview that John sat down to record with him on the opening weekend of the brand new Duty Noble Field Polk Demand Stadium back in mid-February. Here's John Cohen with Ron Polk. Coach Ron Polk, it's a thrill to have you back here at Duty Noble. Polk Stadium. I know we've had a lot of activities. We unveiled two statues, Rafael Palmero and Will Clark. We just unveiled the Ron Polk Ring of Honor, and we put five people in, in your Ring of Honor, six if you include you. I'm just wondering what your impressions are of this new facility and, and this new uh, baseball field. Well, first of all, John, it was a great weekend. I talked to Rafael Palmero and Will Clark and Jeff Brantley and their family, and they could not say anything but positive things about the hospitality and the statues for Will and Ralph. I mean, I, when you told me they were building statues, I, I just thought maybe statues you put on the living room table. I didn't know they were monsters. I mean, my gosh. 
And then the Ring of Honor is so nice. And then to be able to take a tour underneath and all the great facilities and look at that condominium out in left center field. And as I told the people, the Ring of Honor, it's, it's the Taj Mahal of college baseball. It's the Cadillac. And the only way anybody can match it, they have to have a fan base like we have, and they don't, or the money like we have. And some have money, but they won't. This will, this will be the best for many, many years. Coach, 10 years ago, a woman named Nell Cohen said it was the Carnegie Hall. <laughs> Of baseball facilities. <laughs> Just want to give her credit there. Yeah, okay. um, but, I, you know, we, we really have enjoyed having you back. Coach, you told a story, and I'd never heard this before, but I heard you at a speaking engagement, and I think – I can't remember exactly where we were. You and I have spoken in a lot of similar places. And you told a story about getting into coaching under Coach Frank, uh, Frank Sanson at Arizona, and you got the chance to coach third base when you were ridiculously long, uh, young. Um, for our fans who don't remember how young you were when you got into this, can you speak to how young you were when you first got into coaching? Well, I do a lot of banquets. So at 41 this winter, high school, junior college, college, and one of the things I talk to them about, the kids, is distractions that they all have now. And then I decided one year when I was 21 years old, I was going to try to be the coach rather than a coach. And I was just at, at a University of Arizona teaching service classes like archery and badminton. And, uh, and get my master's degree. And then Arizona State and Arizona were the tops in college baseball. This was 65, 66. And uh, Frank Sanson was the old gruff coach and world famous. And, and uh, you know, and he had an office in Bear Down Gym, an old gym, and had a spiral staircase to his office. And I, I just thought maybe I'd go up there and ask him if he had anything for me to do. And, you know, I didn't, never thought he would. Pitch batting practice, hit fungals. And, I kept thinking about going up that spiral staircase, and, and I could have gone up the stairs, but I didn't know where they are. It was right in the same office that I had with the graduate assistants. And, and finally I said, all right, I'm going to go up and, and introduce myself. I just went to Grand Canyon. I didn't sign pro contract, never coached an inning in my life. And so I peeked around the office, and there he was in there with his head down, and, you know, Mr. Sanson. I was scared to death. I just told him Ron Polk played at Grand Canyon. He was teaching service classes. And I'd like to know if you want me to shag, shag balls, anything. I just want to be a part. And, and I couldn't, I just remember him looking up and said, you really want to do that? I said, yeah. Okay. And uh, Ken Cooper is my pitching coach. He's my third base coach. I'd like to coach third base, but I'm getting too old. I want him in the bullpen. If you come out, you're going to be our third base coach. And I said, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Here. So you never coached third base. I never coached anything. And you're about to coach third but base for one of the best – College yeah. baseball programs in the and nation. And we go to Omaha, and Rosenblatt coaching first th third base. And I'm looking up at the crowd and saying, hey, look at me, look at me, like I deserved it here. Were you given signs or was no, Coach Sansa giving you No, he you gave signs? him, if I remember, he gave him from the dugout, I remember. Because I asked, I think I asked him, I said, I've never coached third base. Uh, you know, and the only thing I thought about is waving guys around. I remember one time Reggie Jackson, we were playing Arizona State with the center fielder, and he hosed two runners out the plate within three innings. And I thought he was going to chew me out, but he came down, and I had my head down. And all he said to me, he said, Ron, this is an old coach. He said, Ron. I said, yes, sir. Hey, that Reggie Jackson's got a pretty good arm, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and he walked away from me. I mean, and, you know, that, that was – and then from then on I said – you know, I kind of like this, you know. What did what did Reggie Jackson look like as a college baseball player, Coach? Kind of looked like Bo Jackson. You know, like you look at Bo Jackson and Aubrey, you wonder how he got his pants on. It was just well built. But he, he had a big leg arm. 
Yeah, he was a great player, center field for Arizona. 1966, and I was the third base coach. The and he was playing was football the, as well at the time, right? I don't know if he was or not. I really don't know. I don't know if he did or not. I just can't imagine what that body would look like in college. Yeah, I think Bo, Bo, I mean, you know, Bo Jackson and that Frank Thomas, I've seen all these football, baseball guys, and they all fill the uniform out really well. But that was 66. I just remember having two guys thrown out of home plate, to be honest with you. Well, Coach, that's your story. I want to know. I know you've had several guys come to you, like Frank, Frank Sansett, the story you just told, knocked on your door as a head coach and tried to become – uh, a baseball coach and volunteered their time for you also over the course of the years. You've launched so many coaches. Are there any experiences that you've had just like the one you had with Coach Sansett? Well, the entry-level position that we had was graduate assistants. Now it's a volunteer coach, but graduate assistants were the entry-level position. Guy gets full scholarship. We had two through the athletic department and one through the PE department. They had to teach classes. So I had three guys, and they wanted to be – Head want to be coaches in NCAA, and they knew there's no guarantee. I tried to help them find a job, and basically, they they I gave them responsibilities, you know, and uh, and uh, it worked out great for a lot of them. My gosh, we had so many of our graduate assistants start out in low entry jobs, but finally got great jobs. But and then the NCAA unfortunately took that away from college baseball. Now women's crew gets one. <laughs> <laughs> Coach, um, in, in 1987, from 1987 to 1990, when I was at Mississippi State, I played for eight different head coaches that were on your staff. And I can't name them all right here off the top of my yeah, head. We have some but yeah. I'm just curious, uh, so many coaches take pride in, you know, you've had Will and Raphael and so many big leaguers, I believe 27 of them at Mississippi State. Do you take more pride in the, the assistants who went on and fulfilled their dreams as head coaches or in the players who went on to have great, great careers? Well, both, John. You know, one of the things I really take the most pride in is we've had five of our Mississippi State coaches become the president of the American Baseball Coach Association, and, and the four other than me were graduate assistants with me at one time. Now, that's pretty good. That's amazing. This is the, and no one else has had more than one. But uh, I take pride in anything that anybody's done after they left us. I can't take credit for all I got them through and, and coached, coached them up as best I could and patted them on the back and hugged them and told them we love them and get off and do well. And, and, but, yes, we've had a lot of Mississippi State. And when I was at Georgia for two years, several of those guys have done very well. So, you know, but I, I was along for the ride. I was along for the yeah, ride. Yeah, I know better than that. Coach, when you stepped into this league in 1970. Six was yeah, your first, first season. Year. I just can't imagine. And I was a kid at the time. I was 11 years old, 10 years old at the time. I went to a lot of Alabama games and, and a few Mississippi State games. The landscape at that time of this league and in college baseball in general, I mean, how do you walk into facilities like this now or even anywhere in our league and go back to that time? What's that like for you to compare how far it's come? It's come a long way. I mean, our facility at Mississippi State was just wooden benches, no chair bags. Jim Ellis, our radio guy, did our post-game and pre-game post-game show right on almost in the field, raining. I mean, every stadium was bad in the SEC. Baseball was not very well thought of. Uh, in fact, very few went, went to Omaha during the time, ever. We had 12 rules in baseball in the SEC that the NCAA didn't recognize to restrict us, games, practices, 
junior college, 12 rules. I called them the dirty dozen. And I was a young coach, and I just told the coaches at our meetings, I said, why do we have these rules? I mean, they're so restrictive. And, and they, some of them wanted to fight. Most of all the other coaches were, had another job. I was the first full-time baseball coach in the SEC. The rest of them were assistant football coaches or football recruiters or equipment manager. Uh, kid, the guy at Kentucky, Tuffy Horn, was an insurance man. Right. Yeah. yeah and when right. Keith, Madison, yeah. Keith Madison yeah. got the job in 77 off my staff, graduate assistant, his pay was $7,500. Well, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, we get the first tarp and everybody wanted a tarp. We get the lights. We get the new field. And and then, you know, Skip Berman comes along and then we they start hiring really good coaches. And his assistant coach is very aggressive. And all of a sudden people say, we might be able to make some money, you know. And uh, and all of a sudden it got bigger and bigger, and the press took over, and SEC Baseball Network and ESPN got involved. And I mean, it's just I, I mean I'm the only one I guess still around that started it. I mean, in '76, and I can attest to the, when you see this out here. I mean, we have come a long way. We I, I just told the press in this question and answer. You know, yeah, in 30 more years I won't be around, but someone may just knock this down for something better. And I said. If that happens, I'll be ticked <laughs> in my grave. I mean, how can you take this down, right? The other one I thought was pretty nice. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. You know, and at the time, it's just amazing what your perspective is. At the time, it was. It was yeah. the best. Yeah. Um, but this one, obviously, is a little different. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, it's this has been 30 years in the making. Um, Coach, one, one of the things that I always – people ask me about my love for Mississippi State, and I always tell them – the reason I love Mississippi State so much is because I've been at other places. Yeah. And for those folks who haven't been at other places, it's hard for them to understand what this place is all about. You've been several places. You've been to Georgia Southern. You were at Georgia for a while. Obviously, you've been here. You were at Arizona. Um, you are at Miami-Dade. You're at UAB right now. Do you feel like being away from Mississippi State really – Gives you a perspective of, of what a great special place this is. Oh, yeah. This is where I'll come back once I officially retire. I enjoy what I'm doing at UAB and coaching up in the Cape with all the best players in the country. But uh, all I know is, is the reason I like this place is they care about baseball. You know, a lot of places it's something just to, to worry about a little bit. But, no, they, they care and the love for baseball and the crowds, enthusiasm and the tradition of Mississippi State baseball is almost unmatched. I mean, we don't have a national championship. You came close to it, but it's going to happen. Coach, let me ask you, we're going to play a little game real quick of if I had told you this 25 <laughs> years ago, would you have believed it? If I had told you 25 or 30 years ago that Mississippi State would have one of the best women's basketball programs <laughs> in the country and have 10,000 fans come watch their games and play for a national championship two years in a row, would you have believed that? No, absolutely not. Uh, office in Humphrey Coliseum where the men's and women play basketball. Occasionally, I'm in the office late at night during a basketball game, and women are playing. I'd poke my head down, and uh, I bet, you know, 20, maybe 25, 30 parents and a couple other people, and I, and to see how we're doing, and then go back to the office. If I had told you in 1990 <laughs> that Mississippi State would go to 10 bowls in a row, nine bowls yeah, in a row. Yeah. During this time period, you know, from 2010 all the way to 2019, would you have believed that? No, not not a Mississippi State. I went through seven head football coaches in my time here. I think it was seven or six, yeah. No. Okay. If I had told you that 
Mississippi State would spend $68 million on a baseball facility in 1990. <laughs> when you were playing in a $2.9 million facility, would you have believed that? Absolutely not. Un, un, you couldn't fathom no, that? No, no. And, again, it's progress and other it's people are going to try to emulate what, what has happened here. It's tough. I mean, we're a small town. We're a small state. We're, you know, a school that uh, land-grant school and uh, – you know, to have, as I just told the people out there at the Ring of Honor, I mean, it happened in Starkville, Mississippi. And look at this place. I mean, as we watch a game with that video board, and the condominiums and the sight lines, and mainly also, which a lot of these people will never see, is what, what you all have done underneath for the boys. I mean. Well, I got one more for you. Yeah. Would you have believed in 1990, okay, 24 years later, 1990, in 2014, that Mississippi State would be ranked number one in the nation for four consecutive weeks in college football. Oh, would no, would you believe no, that? Absolutely not. That that was that was the mind-boggling one. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It is. I mean, it should be front page in a lot of newspapers, New York and Chicago. Small town, small athletic budget. Because we were always close to the bottom in budget. Uh, I pulled off an athletic miracle right here, and people say, "Why? We're an attractive school for student athletes." A home-based school, friendly school, people care about you. And that's the biggest ingredient in recruiting, facilities and people who care about you. And Coach, how do you do this? You know, I coach for 25 years, and I really, I, I really make an effort to try and keep up with the majority of the guys that played for me and my staff, the guys who coached with me. H how do you keep up with <laughs> literally thousands of players, not only Mississippi State players, but players you've had in the summer, players who competed against you, how do you keep up with all these kids? And they're not kids. Some of them are 65-year-old men now. Yeah, I just average, I just addressed a birthday card for a 72-year-old guy who played for me at Georgia Southern because I was 27 when I had the job. John, it's something you know, people ask all the time. I, I just tell them I think it's the right thing to do. They were part of my life. I wanted to stay a part of their life. It's all on three-by-five cards. It's all handwritten stuff. There's no computerized stuff at all, nothing at all, no high-tech. High I budget time generally in the morning and on the road I bring the stuff with me and uh, I just get it done and you know I try to write notes in the minor, to the minor leaguers from the all the SEC schools now conference USA and then all my players in the Cape Cod League eight seven tours up there seven tours with the national team 53 years coaching college baseball I don't know how many there are I never had them up there's a lot they, they appreciate it. Their wives appreciate it. Get an anniversary card. They get a Christmas card and birthday card. People say, well, why do you do that? I said, it's the right thing to do. Coach, I, I played for you. Your pitching coach was a guy named Pat McMahon. Um, your first base coach and one of your recruiters and one of your great coaches was a guy named Brian Chupa, who you work with right now at UAB. I think it's the best baseball staff I've ever been a part of or, or not a part of but played for. Um, T tell me about those two guys. Tell me about what those two guys have, have meant to you in your career, Brian Shoup and, and, of course, Pat McMahon. Well, Pat was my assistant on and off until he got head jobs at Old Dominion. No, I mean, I, I, I retired the first time because I brought him back to because I think I didn't think I could survive fighting the NCAA, and I knew I was short-term. And I retired after we came back from the College World Series because I told Pat if I brought him back that he would be the head coach. I didn't want to delay that. Actually, I moved it up a year or two. 
and he appreciated it. But he's a close friend, and now he's in the Yankee organization. He's the coach of coaches in the minor leagues, doing a tremendous job, and he means a lot to me. And the only reason I'm doing one, volunteer coach, no money at all. I have to, my, tax, my tax guy says it costs me about twenty-two grand a year doing what I'm doing because I drive back once a week from Starkville to Birmingham. How many cigars that's is two, that that's trip? A, that's generally a two, two cigar trip, two okay. hours and twenty-two minutes, I think. I, they should name the highway in around Reform and Gordo in Tuscaloosa for Ron Polk. I've driven it, uh, I don't know how many times. But I did, only did, I'm doing it, and I have to, I got an apartment there I paid for, everything. I'm doing it because Brian was my assistant for seven years. I trust him, I value him. When I retired from Mississippi State, with three years left in my contract. People thought I was nuts. But I knew if I stayed here, I'd have to do some, something I'd never done before is have to make decisions on kids based on performance. And I've told everybody that. And so I went there, and Brian's just Christian guy. Every I haven't heard a cuss word, I don't think, in 11 years. We recruit the right kids. We're not going to ever win the national championship because we, we, we don't relieve kids even if they get hurt. And Brian Shoup is the epitome of what college baseball should be about. And it's a faith-based program, and I enjoy it. I don't have to make any decisions. I just make suggestions. I get to go in the Cape in the summer. I get to travel around the southeast, leave and practice early, or come in late to speak to all these high school, junior colleges. colleges. So I live a great life, and by being around these college kids year-round keeps me young. Brian Shoup, I think, is one of the most underrated coaches out oh, there. Yeah. Really organized, had a powerful influence on my life. Pat McMahon brought me with him uh, to the University of Florida. Pat's one of the most creative minds in baseball I've ever been around. When all of you were together, uh, that was a, a magical time for me, and I know a lot of other players. But, Coach, uh, just to finish up, there were a lot of former players here today. Um, and I was just curious what it's like for you when you get to see former players that you don't see very often. I know you see the baseball guys a lot more often than the non, but what's it like for you to be around a, a group of your former players? When I was at Mississippi State, every two years we have alumni weekend. I see a lot of them, but this was a this was a very impressive group that came out when I saw them today. And of course, most of them are about 150 pounds heavier than they <laughs> they were. I could I couldn't didn't recognize a couple of them, but uh, it's great. Uh, and uh, they they enjoy it. They, some of them came from a long way. I mean, one came from Denver, Colorado, and Ben Jenkins came from Dallas. But that that's Mississippi State baseball. It's it's. Mississippi State baseball. They they care about the school. They care about the baseball program. They want it to do well, and we're in great shape now. Chris Lamont is going to do a great job. Great staff. Got a nice ball club. Best facility in college baseball. The future is bright for Mississippi State baseball. And I'm just honored to be a part of the ceremonies this weekend. It's been fantastic. Well, Coach, when you're ready, that radio booth, the Jim Ellis radio <laughs> suite awaits you whenever you want to come back and, and work games with Jim. Jim, in his 40th year, a year ago, we named the suite after him yesterday. Uh, Coach, thanks for being with us, and uh, come back and see us soon. Thanks, John. Wow, Ron Polk's full of great stories now. No question about that. And could you get a sense when you were visiting with him? Obviously, there, there's a great tribute to him in the new stadium here at Mississippi State. Not only did it keep the Polk Dement Stadium name, but now you have the Ron Polk Ring of Honor down in the right field corner. Any sense of, of how that made him feel? Well, I, Neil, this is family. You know, I think Coach Polk really feels like this is family. Let me tell you something about family. I don't know about your family. But folks don't always get along in a family. Things don't always go <laughs> swimmingly in a family. But in the end, um, we are family and we stick together. And I, I think it was one of those coming together moments. 
uh, for Coach Polk, for former players. Boy, we had over 100 former players come back. And, boy, you, you had some serious star power in Will Raphael and Jeff Brantley, who we're just about to talk about. Yeah, we'll hear from Jeff Brantley coming up in just a bit. I'm curious from the players' perspective, what was it like to play for Ron Polk? Well, what he did was he organized your life for you which is the best preparation to go out and be a professional in any anything, athletics or outside of athletics, because every minute is accounted for in Ron Polk's world. And if you're playing for him, he's going to have that expectation of you. And I think several of the players that we actually interviewed uh, talked about that specifically. What happened if you didn't follow Coach Polk's schedule? Well, he was <laughs> insistent, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't tyrannical either. And I, and I might have fallen into that a little bit as, as a coach myself. He, he was a very fair-minded leader, but he had very specific punishments if you didn't follow the protocol. How much of what you learned when you were playing for him, his coaching style, how much did you bring that with you when you started coaching? Well, it was a little bit of a detriment because as a coach, I wanted to be Ron Polk, and I had to be John Cohen. I had to figure out how to make myself into John Cohen instead of trying to imitate Ron Polk. It's funny you say that because I wanted to be Rafael Palmero and, and Will Clark, and I had to be John Cohen, and it really – made me go backwards as a player a little bit because when you're always trying to imitate somebody else, you can't be yourself. So that's really important, uh, an important lesson for me, and it took me a long time to figure those things out. But certainly the lessons I learned from Ron Polk as a player uh, and as a coach, quite frankly, um, have, have really helped me and furthered me in my career. No question. One of the legends, not just in the SEC, but in all of college baseball, and Coach Polk is still going strong today, still ho helping the game, whether it's coaching in the college level, uh, helping out Brian Shoup over at UAB, or whether it's going up in the Cape and helping out in the summers. He's still got the game in his heart at his age and still helping create a new generation of successful baseball players. Okay, we're going to pause here. Uh, I'm out of sunflower seeds. We're going to grab some seeds. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk more baseball with Jeff Brantley when the John Cohen Podcast continues. Incredible iPhone XR and the C Spire network. More features, more coverage, more moments. Like the 6.1 inch liquid retina display for that. Did you say liquid retina? Moment. Or your choice of six stunning finishes for that. Let me see. Moment. Make your moment with the incredible iPhone XR and twice the nationwide LTE. Only at C Spire. Customer inspired. For a limited time, buy the latest iPhone. Get one on us. Details at cspire.com. Glad to have you with us on the John Cohen Podcast. We are talking baseball today already. We've heard from legendary Mississippi State head coach Ron Polk and now transitioning into a guy who pitched for Coach Polk, was successful at Mississippi State, uh, beyond successful in that role, and has gone on not only to be a great major league pitcher and have a long career, but also has gone on to a successful broadcasting career with organizations like ESPN, and most recently in his career, the Cincinnati Reds. We're talking about Jeff Brantley. Uh, I will say this about Jeff. I've been at Mississippi State almost two years. One of the first calls that I received when I got the job was from Jeff Brantley, who I knew zero. Uh, and he has been one of the kindest people to me since I have been a part of the Mississippi State family. And just when you see him at the ballpark when he's around, he's drawn to people, isn't he? He really is, Neil. And he's one of those guys that it, it's just this remarkable dichotomy. When he was a player between the lines, he'd rip your head off. 
I mean, he's a five foot nine inch guy pitching the big leagues for 14 years. He's a guy as a senior, 1985, won 18 games. Neil, when's the next time a guy is going to win 18 games in college baseball? Yeah. Never. That's never going to happen again. That's the type of workhorse this guy was. But off the field, unbelievable teammate. Uh, a guy who's going to do whatever he can to help any cause. He has always been there for Mississippi State. And I look over my shoulder at basketball games all the time. Where's Jeff Brantley? He's sitting eight rows behind me and cheering on the Mississippi State basketball teams. Just a, an incredible human being. Yeah, a guy that comes back. We see him at football and basketball a lot. And John was fortunate to get to sit down with him uh, on the opening weekend of the new Duty Noble Field, Polk Dement Stadium. He was one of a bunch of guys who came back. John talked about star power on that weekend earlier uh, in the show. And Jeff was one of those guys right there to be inducted into the Ron Polk Ring of Honor and help throw out the first pitch with two of his teammates, Will Clark and Rafael Palmero. So here's that conversation from back in mid-February. John Cohen and Jeff Brantley, you're on the John Cohen Podcast. Jeff Brantley, welcome. Thank you for being here this weekend. Tremendous honor to have you. I want to start out by asking you this question. You made a statement one time that I, I to this day I, I, I use in speaking engagements, and I think this is fascinating. You said, I've never been on a team in which I was the best player. That That is fascinating for a guy who spent 14 years in the big leagues. Can you can you speak to that? I, 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 part of it is I was fortunate enough to play with a lot of great players growing up, not just here at Mississippi State, but even before then, uh, whether it was Dizzy Dean baseball or Dixie Youth baseball. There were a lot of guys that I really thought would come here way before me and with better arms. One of them standing behind home plate today <laughs> is one of the best pitchers that we had growing up in Jeff Head, but it just didn't happen. And it just goes to show you – Hard work and dedication and discipline, personal discipline, gets you to where you want to go. That's, that's a really incredible story. Um, and I hate to talk about this because it's probably your least favorite subject. 5'9". You got it. 14 years in the big leagues. I'm, I'm just going to ask you this question. You, you're in broadcasting now. Could that ever happen again? You know, I, I was talking to Riley Self on the field today, and – He's standing next to me and Bobby. Now, when we were here, Bobby Thigpen was like a monster compared to the rest of us. And to see the kids and, and the size that they have today, I mean, Riley Self's a big boy. I mean, he's a big kid. And you see some of the other kids that are down there. I mean, they're freshmen. And they're 6'3", 6'4", 235. I mean, that, that's just today's athlete. It changes. It gets better as you move along. Diet's better. Training is better. I think it's great for all of the, the games, whether it's baseball or football or basketball. Obviously, what you're talking about, your height, your lack of physicality, just screams out your mental toughness. So I want to ask you this question about your mental toughness. What percentage at Mississippi State in the in professional baseball, in the big leagues, what percentage of the time did you feel good? Did your arm feel like it was turning around pretty good? Uh, maybe three or four times a year. The rest of the time, you figured it out. And I always had this thing that and – I, and I took this into pro ball with me. Because the team that I wanted to beat more than anybody else was Alabama. Because I'm from Alabama. <laughs> and they told me that I was too small and didn't throw hard enough to make it in college. So every day when I was out here and I would do my running, I would run to the Alabama side. 
because I wanted it ingrained in my mind that no matter what, all the pain and all the work that I put in was to make sure that I beat the team that I wanted to beat the most. Well, what it did is it taught me not only the work ethic, but it taught me how to motivate myself when I didn't feel good and got to the mound. Jeff, uh, the reason you got to play in the big leagues for so long is you had a lot of different roles. And in this day and age of specialization, in, in this day and age where young people specifically want to be starters for a lot of different reasons, how, how did you make that adjustment from being a guy who really at Mississippi State I mean, the, the amount that you pitched was extraordinary as a starter, but having to make that adjustment when you went to the big leagues. Well, I, I think you, you have to adjust to, to whatever environment that you're in. Now, when I was here, I could really get by with location with my fastball and a good breaking ball that I could throw for a strike. But I, I figured as, as I got further, I had to have some type of off-speed pitch besides a breaking ball that I could control with some semblance of consistency. I didn't have that. And what that ultimate ultimately does is it takes you out of the rotation and puts you in the bullpen. So you figure out, okay, what am I going? Am I going to try to learn a changeup so I can be a starter, or am I going to take these two pitches that are my best pitches and use them in a different role? Well, I took the two best pitches I had and I made myself a closer. Man, that that's really good stuff for for a lot of different reasons. You're right. I think a lot of young guys would rather have three ordinary pitches than two really good ones. And, and I think that's that's really well done. Hey, you moved to the broadcast booth um, after a great big league career. You went to ESPN. You're now with the Cincinnati Reds. You've been with the Cincinnati Reds now for 10 years. Um, you've worked really hard on your craft. What what? How did that come about for you? How difficult was it for you to make that transition? And what steps did you take to, to better your craft? Well, I... I always enjoyed the voices of the game, even when I was playing here. Um, just whether it was the Mississippi State broadcasters or whether it was Keith Jackson, you know, guys that would do college football when, when we were growing up, those are the things that you hear in the, in the background of the game. And for me, it was always an interest, but I didn't know I could do it. And I can remember sitting in the dugout when I was at, um, in San Francisco and both Peter Gammons and Chris Berman were in and we were talking and they were like, guy, you got a great voice. You, you should look into broadcasting sometime. I'm thinking, dude, I got two years in the big leagues. I want to play a lot more baseball <laughs> than I want to do broadcasting. And you did. And, but, but at the end of it, those two guys never forgot that conversation. And as soon as I walked off the field in Texas, within two or three days, ESPN called my agent. And that's how all that got started. Now, being a broadcaster or being a, an athletic director or being a baseball coach or whatever it is that you decide to do in life, you have to adjust to the changes. I mean, it's not, it's not just throwing and being physical on the mound anymore. It's, it becomes a, a mental process, being prepared, learning how to get yourself ready to go and learning the other team just like you would if you were pitched. But, I mean, that's, that's the part that you have to learn as you change jobs. And I was able to do that. Did ESPN have people work with you specifically, or they just said, hey, Jeff, roll, let's they go? They throw you into the fire, and, and the cream rises to the top. I mean, that's really how it is. It's very similar to, to, to playing sports. You get some decent coaching, and you get some guys that can understand you, but until you prove that you're worthy – the coaches aren't, aren't there for you. And I really didn't get much information at ESPN until I'd already been there for three or four years. Let me ask you this question. When you, when you roll over to the Reds broadcasting booth, 
14 years in the big leagues, 10 years traveling with the Reds. You've basically been in the big leagues for 24 years. And, and the travel that goes with I, I just want you to explain to the folks how, how that works with having a family and being on the road that much and being that dedicated to your craft. Well, I, I, think, I think part of it is you have to understand and you have to have it in your mind what comes first. Is it God, family, and then work, or is it work, family, and then you put God off later? I, I think for, for those of us that, that decide in your mind that it's God, family, and work, uh, you can make it work. And, and you figure out that process by, by which you carry yourself in your life. And my children understand that. My wife understands that. And, and you just have to, you have to continue to grind. Not everybody understands that. But if you're not happy with what you do as a man, whether, what, no matter what kind of job it is, it really doesn't matter how much money you make, how much you bring home, because none of that's going to give you happiness. The only way that you can make it is to be happy with who you are. Well, I'm happy being a baseball guy. I was happy being a player, and I love being a broadcaster, and I love being here today. And I think that's the part that drives me on the inside because it makes me a better dad, it makes me a better broadcaster, it makes me a better friend, and that's what I want to be. That might be the best answer to that question I've ever heard. That's phenomenal. Um, walk us through a normal day for you. You're on the road or you're at home in Cincinnati. When the team is playing, what is a normal day for you what time do you get to bed at night? What time do you get up? And what leads up to the ball game? Well, I describe my, my sleep schedule like a vampire um, because I'm, I'm mostly up at night from probably 12 to 2.30 or 3 o'clock during the season. That's when I do most of my research on the opposing club. Because if you, if you try to change your schedule to a normal work schedule that people that get up and go to work at seven or eight o'clock in the morning we don't play baseball then right. we play baseball at seven o'clock at night and that's when the majority of your games are whether you're on west coast or east coast so you set your schedule to that you play a seven o'clock game you're going to get home at 11 30 or 12 o'clock then that's the time i'm usually eating dinner now i know that sounds crazy but that that's for me i don't like to eat before the game i like to eat after the game because i still have that little pitcher's nervous stomach that goes on before every kind of ball game that i've ever been at whether i'm a broadcaster a player or just a fan it's just it's just me so with that being said while i'm doing having dinner and some, most of the time that's by myself because it's midnight and that's when i'm doing all of my research for the following day and yeah i may wake up nine or ten o'clock the following day and go back over that research but I figured out that if I write it down I'll never forget it if I read it I'm going to forget it so I have to write it all down and when I write it down it pops out of my head when I hit the broadcast booth and that's what people like to hear you know Jeff you and I had a conversation you, you don't remember this but I was really taken with the fact that not only are you studying your opponents the Reds opponents and the Reds ball club you, you have a really good grasp of what's going on with all the farm teams for all the clubs going on. I, I remember talking to you about a couple of kids that we had in double A AA or triple A or wherever they were, Mississippi State kids. You're like, you were reciting their numbers like off the top of your head and talking about, you know, how they go about the game. And I just thought to myself, my God, this is an investment. I mean, you got to know what's going on in the entire landscape of baseball. How much time does that take? Yeah, you know, John, I, I, I can say that, that – I do a lot of, of research and a lot of, of reading and, and writing about those things. But I, I think the biggest asset that I have is a God-given asset because I can see a guy pitch, I can see a guy swing, and I never forget it. And it's been that way since I was a little kid. 
Now, it's not something that I learned. It's just there. And sometimes it's a it's kind of a curse because when I watch my 11-year-old play, <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, all right, you got to do this, 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 and he's 11. But I see big leaguers just like I see 11-year-olds. It's just the picture of baseball in my head. Wow. Hey, you've gotten to be around some really famous people. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, movie stars and phenomenal athletes and things of that nature. Are there times in your career where you, you've been, just been – how did this happen to me? How, how did this guy from Barry High School end up on this stage? Do you have the pinch yourself moments? Yeah, I, I think probably the, the biggest pinch yourself moment for me is sitting in the booth. Now, I was a Cincinnati Reds fan growing up. My dad and I used to listen to the Reds in the car. And sitting in, you know, now that I'm working for the Reds and sitting in the same booth with Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, and Tony Perez. And I'm listening to those guys talk, and they're treating me like I'm part of the 70s crew. Dude, is I getting better than that? <laughs> it's the best. Because those guys are just, they're so cool, but they were the greatest of all time. That was the big red machine. And they're treating me like I was one of their teammates. I tell you what, I can listen to Pete Rose all day. All day. He has an unbelievable baseball mind, but I'm going to tell you something else, Jeff. I love listening to Jeff Brantley. He's one of the best in the business, and he is just phenomenal to listen to. Two people, real quick, last thing here. Tell me what Ron Polk and Pat McMahon here at Mississippi State meant to your career. Changed my lifeline. Um, I think the, the teaching from, from Pat McMahon just about pitching is what took me for 14 years in the big leagues because everything that I learned from him, I took all the way to the last day, especially the, the part about being able to master the outside corner of the plate away from your arm side. Uh, that, that's just one of those things, and I use it today when I'm teaching not only the 11-year-olds, but the kids that are in the big leagues. When they come to me, I say, if you can't hit the outside corner, then you're not working enough at it. But that came from Pat. As far as time management and being able to understand what it takes to learn how to work at your craft, Coach Polk is the epitome. I mean, because when, I, when we came, and, and you remember this, John, you look at those schedules, and it's got 1239 to 1246, <laughs> 1248 to 115, and you're thinking, what is that? But that's how it ran. So what it did is it trained your mind. It wasn't just that it was a crazy-looking schedule. It made you look at the world a little bit different. No question. And different for Coach Polk in his way is really good. Yeah, and you take that to the rest of your life. You, uh, you no start doubt. segmenting your days the way those practices were segmented. Yeah, you, because that, that's how you're trained. It's just like being a dad and raising up your children. If you teach them to look at things through a different lens, not just the everyday lens, but a different lens, it changes their life. No question. Jeff Brantley, it's been an honor. Congratulations. You're going to be inducted into the Ron Polk Ring of Honor today. We can't wait. And uh, just thrilled that you're here, brother. Thank you, John. Thank you. That's the Cowboy, Jeff Brantley, with John Cohen on the John Cohen Podcast. Neil Price back in our studios here in Starkville. Glad to have you with us. Uh, I heard a story about his nickname, the Cowboy, and it's funny how one moment – 
can stick with a person the rest of their life. Uh, Jeff was leaving the clubhouse one day, went in and put on a pair of cowboy boots, was going to see his family. And as he walks out, a teammate says, there goes the cowboy riding off into the sunset. It was as simple as that. But to hear him talk, his voice draws you in because it's so welcoming. It has that homespun quality to it. And I could sit and listen to the two of you talk for hours. Well, here's the thing, Neil. He does have a great voice, and, and from the time he got done playing in a great, you know, fourteen-year major league career, from the time he got playing, he was in demand because of that voice and his communication skills. But he knew he didn't have it figured out, and he had to work every single day, just like Neil Price, do his research, do his homework every single day to figure out how to be the best play-by-play guy, best color guy he could possibly be. And knowing Jeff, you don't expect anything less. He is one of those guys. He follows through on every single thing he attempts, and uh, it's just so humbling to be able to even speak to a guy like Jeff Brantley. And having been around the ballpark as long as you have, you know that pitchers that are very good at what they do make it look effortless and easy. And I think listening to Jeff, uh, because I'm a Reds fan, long-suffering, listening to Jeff do the Reds games with Marty Brenneman, he has that quality as a broadcaster, too. Not only could he make it look effortless and easy on the mound, but he can also break it down in a way that is easy for listeners who maybe have never gone out on the mound one time in their lives to understand what they're trying to accomplish. Well, he does the two big things that you do, Neil. Number one, he educates. He makes you aware of what's going on. He can paint the picture. But the second thing is he's entertaining. He's telling you a story, and you enjoy hearing about that story. And he's breaking down the game in a way that – you know, most people can't can't break it down. It's so rare that somebody can go on the mound and do the things and then get in a broadcast booth and describe those things because they're completely different skills. And uh, Jeff, Jeff, just you're right. He makes it look easy. And his, his humbleness comes across immediately because the first thing you talked about in the conversation was a statement that he made that he has never been the best player on any team that he's played on, yet look at the accomplishments, and one would beg to differ with that, wouldn't they? Neil, if you go in the Mississippi State locker room right now and you see the 35 players that they have, there's not one of them who can't say, I wasn't the best player on my high school team. I wasn't the best player on my Little League team or my summer team or whatever. So them making that transition to this level where they're not the best player anymore is very, very difficult. Jeff had that. His entire life, he's had to fight for everything he's ever accomplished, and that makes his story even more impressive to me. And just to to kind of follow up on the broadcast end of it, because I've got just a little bit of expertise in, in that world, I heard him tell a story about when he first went to ESPN after his playing career was done, and he was asked, if there was any coaching, any grooming, and he said, they throw you right into the fire. So he had to figure those things out. He had to lean on, again, the personality, his ability to communicate the game with other people. And then after that run with Baseball Tonight ends at ESPN, he goes to work with a Hall of Famer and Marty Brenneman in Cincinnati. And I'm thinking just if I put myself in that position, how how intimidating that could be, how nerve-wracking that could be. But again, Jeff's love of people comes through and he makes an effortless transition. Well, Jeff respects everyone but he's not afraid of anyone, and that's how he pitched, and that's how he is in the broadcast booth, but certainly a guy who didn't take anything for granted, no shortcuts. He did everything the right way, and he 
you know, that's why he's such a successful person on the field and off the field, Neil. If you are not ready for baseball season after the two conversations we have heard here today with Ron Polk and Jeff Brantley, I don't know what else we can really do for you. I think we'll have some more that you'll be interested in as we get a little deeper into this podcast. But uh, two today that certainly have set the table in a big, big way. Jeff Brantley, Ron Polk, our guest today, will come back and wrap things up on this episode of the John Cohen Podcast after this. Ah, oh, finally, a kids-free weekend. And you miss your kids. At Seaspire, we get it. That's why our network now has twice the nationwide LTE coverage. So no matter how far from home, you can always check in. Grandpa got me a double chocolate extra sugar milkshake. For that never far from home moment. The Seaspire Network has you covered. Seaspire, customer inspired. For a limited time, buy one Galaxy S10, get one free. Details at seaspire.com. Back in our Starkville studios, I'm Neil Price along with John Cohen. This is the John Cohen Podcast, and we are glad that you are with us wherever you are listening today. We've had some great baseball conversation with Ron Polk and Jeff Brantley. Uh, just a really full day on the podcast. But again, baseball season is in full swing, and we're going to stay in that mode next week, and people are really going to enjoy what you got cooked up for, Mark. I think so. I think we have some some guests coming up, some more baseball folks, and uh, I think folks are really going to enjoy our conversations we're going to have. But you buried the lead. I, I set you up <laughs> so you could talk about thunder and lightning. Yeah, but see, you said it better than I did. Yeah, thunder and lightning. It's funny, during our ceremony, um, where we unveiled these incredible statues, and we talk a little bit about that in the interviews, but um, Will leaned over, uh, I think it was said by Dr. Keenum, our great president here at Mississippi State, he said, I still don't know who's thunder and lightning. Will leans over to me, and he goes, damn it, I'm thunder. (laughs) And I couldn't stop laughing, because that's Will Clark, and that's why we love him and admire him so much. He's one of those great personalities, really, in the, in the history of baseball. Well, damn it, next week, Thunder and Lightning will be on this podcast, and we hope that you will be here, too. Uh, in the meantime, we'd love for you to uh, rate the podcast. Let us know how we're doing. You can do that by simply sending a few stars our way. And uh, also, remember to click subscribe if you haven't already. And our podcast, or John's podcast, will be delivered uh, to your uh, favorite device, your phone, your tablet, your computer each and every week it's effortless all you got to do is click the subscribe button it'll be right there ready for you to listen and we'll look forward to having you listening again when we get together next week with will clark and Raphael palmero thanks for listening i'm neil price for john cohen and our producer daniel watkins we'll see you next week on the john cohen podcast